When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard-to-recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. Here we talk about board games. My name's Michael Walker, and I'm here with my good friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm quite well, Walker. How are you? Always good. Today's bit of sociology is always be positive. I always hear people talking about, this is my favorite designer. This is my best type of game. So when they play a game that's out of their bubble or out of their box, sometimes they come into it with a little bit of negative attitude. So... Whenever you play a game, just be aware that you're going to be playing with people around you. So just be aware when you start a game up that there are other people at the table, and they're there to have fun as well. So always go in with a positive attitude. I'm not always the best at this, but one thing that always amazes me is when people psych themselves out before the game begins. If a rule gets introduced and you're not a fan of that mechanic, fine, whatever. And I'm, I'm definitely guilty of voicing my displeasure before a game starts there. But we have a couple of people in our acquaintance who just look at a board and start convincing themselves that the game is a certain thing. And even if you try to demonstrate to them that it's not that thing, they've already psyched themselves out. Or smart people who convince themselves that that they're too dumb to understand a game, or smart people who convince themselves that they're too smart to play a dumb game. I agree with you. A little bit more positivity can go a long way, even when you're playing a shitty game. Especially party games. Yeah. Party games are getting a bad rap, and you really should just, you know, climb down off your overly high horse, don't hit your head on the way down and try some of these fun dexterity slash party games. Absolutely, I could not agree more. On today's show, we're going to do some things like talk about games we played this week, have some news, our feature game, which is going to be Feudum, and then we're going to be having a topic about Euro games. So what did you play this week, Mark? So at our public gaming day this week, we actually had two full tables of Spirit Island running. We had a whole bunch of new players introduced to my personal game of the year last year. And Spirit Island almost invariably wins converts wherever it goes. And this week was no exception. I've played this game dozens of times, and every time Spirit Island reveals something new to me, this time I was trying to get a particular spirit to work that I hadn't had much 
success in doing before because the asymmetry in this game is so huge and the realm for specialization is so large and the variety of different effects that you can focus on is so big that Spirit Island really is one of the most sandboxy of Euro games of its type. And so a couple of spirits I haven't really had much success with. And so I'm trying to, especially with new players, and we're playing on an easier difficulty and, you know, victory is almost guaranteed, I am trying to delve into those spirits that I've had less success with or less affinity with and trying to see if I can adapt to their playstyle rather than forcing them to fit what I'm used to doing. All things being equal, if it's a hard difficulty, I will probably play as Ocean's Hungry Grasp and drown everything that I can see. I used to think that burning things to death was fun, but drowning things is much more satisfying. I can, I can like say. horrifying people so their brains ooze from their ears. I thought that's that's always a fun plan as well. Ah, but then if you play Ocean's Hungry Grasp in combination with Bringer and Dreams of Nightmares, you can drive people mad screaming into the sea, which then swallows them. It's a great combination. Yeah, it's, 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 such a, it's such a loving game. It is. At any rate, Spirit Island was a great time. I have yet to see any indication of my ever tiring of it. I didn't speak to everybody who was introduced to the game, but I spoke to about uh, four or five of the six people that were introduced to Spirit Island, and several of them had extremely positive reactions. So I think we've got a, a few more converts. And that was Spirit Island. All right. And also this week to the table, we got City of the Kings back to the table. Uh, we didn't win again, but I, like I said, I enjoy losing co-op games. City of Kings is a Kickstarter that just came out where it's a adventure type pick your character the races are very much out of the norm so it's it's a nice change and the different mechanics and how it works we talked about it already so i'm not going to go back into it again i am still loving this game and am looking forward to playing it a third time and maybe we might win this time that, that would be nice i think what we need to do and this is actually a testament to the city of kings i think we might need to specialize a little bit more have one character be good at some subset of things and another character be good at other things. We've been doing character advancement mostly in our own little bubbles, just doing whatever we wanted to do at the, at the given time. I think that's a good way to lose, which is why we've been losing. And it's the stumbling around bit, you know, actually reading. Well, you read the scenario, but maybe I should actually listen. I know that that might be a new thing for me, listening, but, you know, I'll, I'll give that a whirl. I actually have a, some misgivings about the scenarios in the City of Kings. I'm hoping that they're either going to change things up or at least not make it so much about either kill something or pick up and deliver. Maybe it's unreasonable for me to ask that the game do that, because, uh, more than that, because that's basically what the game is. There's some fighting, there's some pick up and deliver. It's, it's mostly just a Euro combination of those two things with an adventure theme grafted on top of it. And to be sure, the fantasy universe, as you say, is not cookie-cutter, derivative, Tolkien-esque nonsense. And in the City of Kings, it's kind of interesting that you are having an adventure game with some pick-up and deliver elements and you're managing a workforce. Now, whether that's particularly novel or just unsatisfying as a fantasy hero is very much up to you. But I am looking forward to exploring more. I'm not sure what I want it to lead into, but uh, I've got some misgivings and uh, let's, just, uh, let's just see where it goes from here. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting it back to the table myself. In terms of things we've been revisiting, the final two warbands of this cycle of Warhammer Underworld Shadespire were released, Magor's Fiends and the Farstriders, and I'd been very keen to give them a try, and we, we finally got them, gave them a shot. And indeed, although it's very much more of the same, it's very, mu very much more of the same for me in a good way because the faction differentiation continues to be relatively pronounced, both in terms of the core abilities of the units and in terms of the abilities of the cards. And every warband seems to have its own flavor about how best to pursue its own goals. 
but you seem to be, based on some comments you've been making, you seem to be a little bit souring on the game. Is that accurate? A little bit. Not so much on the game itself, but just I got out of tournament stuff a while ago, and I'm, I'm dipping my toe back in, and, I, and I'm beginning to remember why I dislike the tournament scene so much and the super competitiveness and and the needing to trim your deck down so it's like this uber-killing machine instead of just playing for fun type thing. But I'm going to be still committed. I'm going to give this a whirl and see where it leads. So I, sh- I shouldn't have brought out my foam hands and my poster board. I shouldn't have screamed woo right in your face every time I killed one of your guys. That yeah, was, that was bad. You know, picking up my copy of Shadespire and spiking it into the ground like after you beat me it was a bit much. But I waited until after I won. It's true. That's what that's what sportsmanship is called, right? True. Yeah, I, I agree with you. A a loss in Warhammer Underworld's Shadespire can be very dispiriting. It's 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 a quick game, as we've commented before. We've said a lot about the game. It's very tight, limited number of actions, and it's less grindingly awful to have your warband systematically eliminated in Shadespire, but it's still pretty grindingly awful. And that's why I stopped playing some Infinity, by the way, because again, it's unsatisfying for both the victor and the loser if the victor plays a very methodical game of winnowing out all the opponent's characters and there's very little you can do to counter that. At least in Shadespire, there are a lot of different ways to play the game. And I played Magor's Fiends, and Magor's Fiends loves to just kill everything. And that's fine, but that that kind of leans on Shadespire's less strong elements, partially the elimination aspect, but also just the dice system. If you're going to be relying on attacks to do well, you're going to be relying on the success of dice rolls, and it's a very, very, very small pool of high-consequence dice rolls with lots of weird results sometimes. So it's a very high-risk, high-reward thing. And yeah, I mean, Magor's Fiends weren't to my taste. They were very good at what they were doing, and you know, you can build them to spec to go kill things, but I prefer a slightly sneakier, slightly more objective-based warband, which I guess is, you know, it's both a plus and a minus. It allows for playstyles we don't like, but in Shadespire, there are lots of different ways to go about crafting your force. So I completely respect that the sort of hyper-competitive tournament environment is is very much toxic to a good game system. We'll actually see because we're we're both going to be at a tournament in a come in a, a, about two weeks' time. So That's we'll, correct. We'll we'll see how that shakes out. Hopefully, it won't be an unpleasant experience for you. Ah, it should be fine. The last game I'm going to talk about from this week is Agents of Smog. We finally finished our last game in the first campaign, and you know after playing seven games. Uh, of this, you know, in-depth, steampunk, Victorian campaign game. You should have seen the awesome story it had after we finished it. Mark, it was six lines of a half paragraph. <laughs> and and it was, congratulations, you won. After all of that, that's, that's what we got. It could have been worse. It could have been, but your princess is in another castle. Still, <laughs> I was a little disappointed. I think they could have leaned a little bit heavier on the storytelling of a campaign system like this. I agree. We both managed to play, although in separate games we didn't play together, but I saw you try the new Shadow Rift expansion called Sh- Skittering Darkness. This is uh, Shadow Rift 2nd Edition was released a few years ago by Jeremy Anderson and Game Salute, and the latest expansion is called Skittering Darkness. It just hit backers' hands over the past couple of weeks. And when it comes to deck builders, generally speaking, deck builders with more things are a good thing. More available cards to purchase, bigger pools, greater amount of variety... And to that extent, I think it's safe to say that Skittering Darkness is fine. You know, it's it's the same quality, the same good quality as the previous releases in terms of the enemy types and the action cards. So I don't think there's much to say about that. 
Do you yeah. I, I wanted to bring up, I want to talk a lot about uh, Shadow Rift because it's a fantastic game. I want to cam- compare it a little bit to uh, Xenoshift, right? It is a cooperative deck builder. And what it does even better than Xenoshift is when it's the player's actions, they don't have to take time each taking actions. Everyone does their stuff at the same time. So that's fantastic. More interaction that way. When you, there's a currency of gold that you can buy and it's like a shared pool. So, you know, you don't have to fiddle around with that. And, it's it's very streamlined that way where you it's pretty well free forming and there's you don't get bogged down in a bunch of except for the deck shuffling that you have unfortunately have to go through but other than that you can coast through a game rather quickly. I think there's a lot of good things to say about Shadow Rift and indeed I have said a number of good things about Shadow Rift and I think you're right to compare it to Xenoshift because I think we both think that Shadow Rift and Xenoshift are are pretty much the top tier co-op deck building games. And there are ways in which one is more interactive, you know, has better player interaction than the other. I personally really like the way in Xenoshift how you can buy a card for anybody. So, yes, in Shadow Rift, it is the case that coins are a pooled resource. But in Xenoshift, really, every resource is a pooled resource because you can transfer them and it's great. But you're right that the simultaneous actions of things helps things flow a lot better because things don't grind to a halt as you resolve the attack phase and everyone does it in sequence. Instead, it's just, well, I'll whack this thing and then I'll buy this card and you do this other thing and then we're off to the races. It's also neat that you're building more than one deck. You're collectively building the village up in terms of hiring visitors. There's a whole lot of good things about Shadow Rift. But... Can I complain about the expansions for just a minute here, Walker? Of course. Yeah. So when the first expansion was released to second edition, which was called Eve of the Sickle Moon, I went on a bit of a rant at the time about how it's completely unacceptable for an expansion to not have any rules instructions, especially when, number one, it introduced a new card type, which... Yeah, there are kind of instructions buried on the card about how to use this new card type, but they're incomplete and they lead to rules questions, legitimate rules questions about how they function. So congratulations for that. You have to go check on the forum. And number two, there's no setup information. And you might say, oh, it's just a deck builder, right? You just, it has randomizers. Go take that. But no, because you're supposed to prune the available cards so that you have 10 villagers, 10 travelers, and 4 infiltrators. So when an expansion introduces new villagers, new infiltrators, and new wandering villagers, well, and there are no instructions about how to prune it down, you are, you're either supposed to guess that that's what you're supposed to do, or go find some post of the designers somewhere. Anyhow, it was also the case that the first expansion didn't have suggested layouts. In Shadow if there are suggested layouts for, you know, specific action cards that merge well with the specific monsters, they're generally pretty well done and pretty fun. Not that the randomizers aren't good. And the designer again said, oh, you know, I kind of forgot to include suggested layouts. So fast forward to Skittering Darkness, the second expansion. Now there are suggested layouts and credit where credit is due. They put in suggested layouts for Eve of the Sickle Moon as well. So if you've got both expansions, now you've got your suggested layouts. But there are still no rules instructions. And the same questions. I know people who've been playing Shadow Rift for years, ever since the second edition came out, and who have all the expansions and have no idea you're supposed to pare down the villager deck and the, the, the wandering villager deck and the infiltrators. And they just shove everything in because that's the normal expectation when there's no rules documentation. And there are people who play the new card type wrong because... Because there's no documentation. Anyhow, 
When the first expansion was released, the designer Jeremy Anderson said, and indeed during the campaign for the second expansion, said that there would be a rules document because he is a normal human being with sane expectations and standards for what a product should contain. The fact that it's not there leads me to conclude, and this may be an unfair inference, but it leads me to conclude that the publisher, GameSalute, which many people have serious problems with independently, they've done some shady things, apparently their fulfillment's been a mess in a number of instances, I have to assume that it was some kind of pushback from them that they didn't want to bother including a rules document. It's just not okay. It's completely unacceptable. Even if there weren't a new card type and new rules and new kinds of setup information, you have to include at least some slip of something. It doesn't have to be paper. It could be another card. Print it another card. Say, you know, thank you for purchasing this product. Here's what you do with it. I can't believe they did it again. The same stupid thing. they, They did it again. They did it again. And there's all sorts of terms on there that, of course, we understand, like trigger when this triggers, when this is that. But people that don't play a lot of games have no idea. You have to explain these keywords. You can't just add new keywords and expect people are going to know what to do. Brutal. Great game. I wish it were published by a publisher that gave half a damn. But (laughs) this this, this level of, of negligence is astounding. All right, let's push. I'll stop you before it goes too much. The last game we want to talk about this week is John Company. John Company is the latest release from Sierra Madre Games. This is Phil Eklund's company, but it was not designed by an Eklund. It was designed by Cole Whirl, who also who had previously designed Uninfamous Traffic, which definitely has one of the best board game titles of all time. John Company is a game about the British East India Company, and upon reading the rules, it's, it felt a lot to me like sort of a modern redo of a game called Republic of Rome, which was an Avalon Hill title from 20 years ago. Republic of Rome was... Very long. It was about getting senatorial offices, but then random nonsense might happen and your family might die. And then there might be a war over which you had very little control, which it was a fascinating game. But at the end of the day, it was far too many rules, far too long, and you had far too little control over it. And I was a bit concerned that John Company might have too little control and might be a little too wild. But I have to say, I was very pleasantly surprised by the level of calibration of the randomness and the chaos. I mean, this is very much a personal preference thing. But to my taste, the level of randomness introduced by the events of the the events in India, various Indian colonies that you might be subjugating might revolt or might conquer other things and so forth. And the retirement in particular, the attrition rules, as they're called, your family members retire semi-randomly. And those are your opportunities to score when they retire. But I was very pleased with how it worked out. It, it, It meant you had to stay flexible. You didn't know when your cash reserves were necessary. You didn't know when you could afford to make investments and when you needed to save. Uh, I was very pleased with that element. What did what did you think about the the level of cra- of craziness? I, I I liked it. I liked the whole game. I was just thinking while you were talking there that the event cards were multi-purpose. They served all sorts of things. I'm just wondering how it would work if they did the attrition on those cards as well. When you flipped it over, it said these officers are going to retire this round. Save this, you know, rolling rolling over and over again. Right? I thought maybe that's something would have been since it's already you know, determining all the randomness already, it could be another use for the card. I don't know. It might be a little punishing for, or or at least create a, a disincentive to occupy an office that has recently been vacated, right? If you know the card that says the president of the Bombay company has retired, has already come up, well then, you know if you occupy the presidency of Bombay, you're less likely to go retire. So the fact that you need it to be purely random every round, I think might be just baked into the design. I mean, the process wasn't that, no, it wasn't terrible, but I mean, it was just an idea. It's like, if you already have this randomizer, why not use it for everything? Well, that actually leads to another virtue of the game. 
which is that there's a number of different ways that you can approach it. You, for example, Walker, you didn't seem to want to occupy many offices. You seem to have a sort of arm's length approach to the company. And in John Company, you're like, eh, maybe the company will crash and burn. I don't really care. I'm off doing my thing. A little bit of shipyards, a little bit of factories, a little bit of manors, little vacation homes. Like, I don't really care what happens with, with, with the company. And so, yes, the attrition rules for, for presidencies of the company you probably don't care about because they're probably not yours. I, on the other hand, was neck deep in the company's business, trying to make sure that the damn thing succeeded, which we barely were able to manage. And it was fascinating because we both ended up at a, 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 as a tie. We ended a, as a tie score, which was great. I We pursued radically different strategies. We had radically different emphases on the game state. And so it was very sandboxy in that way. Lots of different ways to do it. I was a little disappointed by how that did not result in our particular playing of too much cutthroat negotiation. There was basically two groups of people at the table, one group trying to make the company succeed and the other group that was happy to just sit back and watch them struggle. You, I think, had a couple of opportunities during our playing of John Company to possibly try to shaft the company real hard and then laugh at the ruins, but instead you didn't do that for a variety of reasons. And that's fine. That, again, is one of the strengths of the game. I think there's a lot of different ways to approach it. So I'm, I'm keen to try it again. I wasn't blown away on my first playing. It didn't lead to the kind of nego- uh, the quantity and quality of negotiations that I really like, but that might have been group-dependent. And so I'm keen to see what a different group does uh, with it. I can't see shafting the company completely would be advantageous to anyone. It is advantageous to you precisely insofar as other players are more invested in the company. Exactly. So... If you are the least invent- invested in the company, it is absolutely in your interest to, to watch the company crash and burn. If you're the second most invested in the company and the person who uh, – second least, rather, invested in the company and the person who's least invested in the company is not your direct point competitor, it is still in your interest to watch the company crash and burn. I really liked how the stories came out of the game. Absolutely. Like you said, you're this, that. I was like the, the mafia extorting money to you know let the goods be shipped and I thought it was – it was all around is like a very much like archipelago type game where you had to sort of keep the villagers, keep the company just alive to just, you know, eke out, you know, what you need out of it and try to manipulate enough so people, other people don't get out of it. I think it was a, I really want to play it again. For a game that looks like a spreadsheet, there was a lot of narrative. You know, we, we invested even just specific family members, specific wooden cubes with so much personality about what they'd been doing and about what had been happening to them. And that's really a testament to the, the scope and sweep of the game. I think uh, the designer did a great job of investing John Company with a lot of personality. I am worried about the entry level, right, with the rule book and how much, you know, front end stuff there is. If people don't understand how much the game just sort of runs, I don't want to say runs itself because that might come out of a negative thing. It doesn't just, you know, you sit back and everything happens, but it just sort of the way the flow is so good. You know, it all goes, you know, all makes sense, all works in with each other that and you can see how it develops. And I'm going to talk about this earlier. It's sort of like a cascading victory point thing where you're going to get a little bit here. You invest a little bit here and it's and it slowly builds up over time and you start, you know getting victory points. I really like it. Yeah, I agree. It needs a little bit of buy-in from the players at the beginning. The rules explainer has to be like, look, this is going to sound like a lot, and to a certain extent it is, but once things start rolling, everything will make sense. Because, yeah, the structure of the game is really well done, and it's really smooth, which is very much unlike a lot of other Sierra Madre games. John Company is... they Ever since... Sierra Madre has been getting more and more exposure, and their, their their titles have been becoming ever more popular. I'd say everything they've published since High Frontier has been vastly smoother and more accessible than pretty much everything they did before that. 
But this still, nonetheless, has a lot of that characteristic Sierra Madre historicity and crunchiness and sense of crazy things happening because that's how things happened historically. I'm interested in exploring the system further, and it has a lot going for it. All right, and that's John Company. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So, Mark, were you aware that in Europe they have a music competition every year? (laughs) Yes. It is called Eurovision. And believe it or not, this is where the board game industry, I think, has jumped the shark. Because apparently the Eurovision game that was made in 2007 was not good enough or it was so good that there is yet another Eurovision the board game coming out and... Just wow. Have you, Walker, ever watched a Eurovision song I, competition? I, I watched an hour of one. It is it is what it seems like. It is a, a music competition in Europe. So as a big fan of Macross, yes, I found another way to mention Macross. I'm of the opinion that pop music, the, inter- the intersection of pop music and geopolitics is a natural marriage. And so I found it fascinating. The Eurovision I watched, I've watched one Eurovision, and I wish I could watch it again, because finding streaming Eurovision in North America is sometimes very difficult. We watched a couple of months after Russia annexed Crimea. And so watching the voting patterns, it's kind of like the Cold War Olympics, right? Watching the judges vote on various things. The song that won our year was a Ukrainian song about the horrors of war. And it was just right on the nose. And every... Baltic and Eastern European judge loved the song, except for the Russian judge who hated it. It was beautiful. And this is on top of the wild nonsense that occurs. Like animatronic death metal bands with with weird wing prosthetics and, and stuff like that. There's so much pageantry to the Eurovision Song Contest. I cannot begrudge them for making to want a board game out of it. It's true. Maybe they'll incorporate some of that geopolitical neandering and voting that'd be interesting oh wow that'd be great <laughs> it would be great actually now <laughs> now i want to look into it more yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that would be good you talked yourself into it there you go minor bit of news here red raven which is the imprint of ryan laucat he of above and below above and below near and far empires of the void is going to be having a target exclusive game called megaland now as far as the design itself it looks basically like ink and gold or diamant with about half of the interesting bits ripped straight out of the middle of the game so I don't think I'm going to have any interest in trying it but the fact that such a small imprint is now having a target exclusive game that's got to be great for them and it's got to be great for the hobby because say what you want about or and I believe I just did about the designs of Ryan Lovecat and whether or not Megaland is going to be any good having it in uh, mass market distribution. So it's going to be sitting next to Pandemic. It's going to be sitting next to Santorini. It's going to be sitting next to even other Target exclusives that are shockingly good, like the Chameleon. This is good stuff. I've been trying to follow as best I can the introduction of hobby games into the mass market, and this is just another positive development. Agreed. My next bit of news is Imperial Assault. You thought it was done. Usually when uh, Fantasy Flight, you know, does the app, they did this for Descent. You know, they had all the had all the new expansions come out and then they did the app and there's been nothing new really. And so I felt that Imperial Assault was probably done, especially with the release of Legion. But they announced even more releases and uh, they're going to finish off. There was a, a Star Wars show called Rebels. They already put out uh, uh, Syndulla. And uh, the and the and the droid, uh, Chopper. Sorry. So and now they're going to do the rest of the cast. So that's going to be great. And Hondo. Oh my God. Thank the. Just thank you for Hondo. 
He's like a smuggling guy that is hilarious in the show, and now we're going to have a figure for him. Oh, wait. It is great. In the, I've never seen uh, Star Wars Rebels. In Star Wars Rebels, there is a smuggler named Hondo. Correct. Is it, is it spelled H-A-N-D-O? That I could not tell you. Because there's already a smuggler named Han, who I think had a relatively prominent role in the Star Wars universe. Now, this is a much cooler guy named Han Doe. Okay. <clears throat> sure. News out of France now. Maybe you've seen this. This got a lot of attention both on Board Game Geek and on Reddit. Bruno Faiduti showed up on behalf of the Société des Auteurs de Jeux, which is a French a loose association of board game authors. So, apparently, the story is, and this is the story from Bruno Faiduti, the, the Société des Auteurs de Jeux, and a man by the name of François Bachelard. Apparently, he submitted, François Bachelard, submitted a design to a company called Wonder Dice that was based, based off of the first Alien movie, and it was called Nostromo. And they were involved in negotiation over a contract to publish the game. The negotiations fell through. Monsieur Bachelard says it's because they never got back to him about his clarifications, things about royalty schedules and things like that. And now, four years after this, they are publishing a game called Nostromo. And apparently the uh, people who've done close examinations of the rulebook, I've done a superficial examination of the the rulebook, the similarities are, shall we say, very, 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 very strong. And so the claim is that he submitted a, a game for them to publish. They initially offered him a contract, but then for whatever reason, the contract fell through. And now they're just going to publish the game anyway. The responses of this publisher named Wonder Dice have been kind of dodgy. Now, to a certain extent, I'm not going to blame people for not wanting to comment publicly about controversies that may or may not have legal overtones, and I do not want to touch the legal issues. I don't give a crap about the legal issues one way or the other, honestly. But they basically say, well, you know, we don't really list credited designers on our games because they're all designed internally in a collaborative manner and blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, that already raises the nonsense meter. If you're not able to credit a designer, this you, but you totally came up with it totally originally, then uh, I don't know. I'm always dubious when, when board game publishers try to publish a game and don't want to credit an author to begin with. And so they say it's purely coincidental. The, you know, the similarities are only superficial. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how much uh, to buy all that. But basically, the consensus appears to be amongst the Société des Auteurs de Jeux, the only recourse here is consumer pressure. They're calling on people not to support any Wonder Dice products and certainly not the Nostrobo game because they don't think they have much of a legal recourse. And even if there were a legal recourse, they don't, they don't think they could afford it. But this is actually, the reason why uh, uh, this is particularly troubling is because this industry exists almost exclusively on trust. You know, in North American copyright law, you can't copyright game mechanics. You can only copyright specific formulations of text. And you have to submit your product to people in order to try to get to publish them. If you're not going to publish it yourself, you have to submit it and let other other people see it. And the only thing stopping somebody from stealing designs like this, whether it's from submission stage or later, is... Morality. Well, the morality and the response of the market. So I'm paying very close attention to how this is developing. I'm going to try to, to see what other statements this publisher, Wonder Dice, comes up with. And I'll see what uh, François Bachelard and Bruno Faiduti and the other French designers have to say about it. But this is an ongoing situation, and it's uh, it's troubling to say the least. All right, my last bit of news is that there's going to be another Spectre Ops game. New characters, new equipment. I had sort of shelved my copy of Spectre Ops, waiting for a promised app to take over the, to the line of sight rules and so forth. So I haven't played it in quite a while. I do love, it's another hidden movement. One guy's a spy, he's trying to blow up certain parts of the, 
the map while everyone else is trying to find him. So this is going to come with a new map, new characters, new equipment. So, and hopefully with the new game, there'll be more pressure to put an app out. So we'll see. Is this an expansion or a standalone game? Standalone. Or? Oh, interesting. Yeah. And that is the news and why it does not matter. So our feature game this week is a game called Feudum. This was put out by Mark K. Swanson. It's his first published design. The company's Oddbird Games. This is their first published design. And it was put out this year as a Kickstarter. Now, full disclosure, we got this as a review copy. We got the base retail version. I've been very clear in many different venues. I don't see anything at all problematic or insidious about review copies in general. I don't un, I don't think there's anything insidious in sending only retail copies. I don't think there's anything insidious in sending the Kickstarter blamed out one. If especially since more and more games are Kickstarter exclusive, why not send a whole bunch of or if it's the case that the majority of consumers are going to be playing with Kickstarter copies, well then perhaps a, a better review is indeed for the the full Kickstarter version. I don't know. Send whatever you like. So there's not really a publication history to talk about, so there's no real pedigree of this game per se. So why don't you give us your famous Walker rundown about what one is doing in Feudum? Try to be brief. We've got a, we, we I, I think my, uh, my RAM will cut out if you talk more than three hours. No problem. Here we go. Feudum, what are you doing in Feudum? Well, it's going to have something to do with what I'm going to call with the Circle of the Guilds. In Feudum, there are six guilds, and they're all interlocked in this large circle. There's three on either side of this board, and... You're going to be putting these pawns out onto the table that are represented by dice. And it's a six-sided dice, i.e. representing the six guilds. And you're going to be moving these pawns around, manipulating the six guilds. And when you take a guild action, you're either going to be pulling goods from one way on the circle or pushing one way on the circle, and this is how you're going to be scoring victory points. And then, like I said, the dice represent the six guilds, so when you deploy them on the map... You turn them to whatever face, you know, you want them to be, and they're going to have certain abilities that will be on the map, and you're going to be spreading your influence throughout the land and upgrading farms, creating feudums, planting crops, building crazy submarines and airships and reaching into the haversack and summoning monsters and sea serpents. And, oh my goodness, you're going along a a movement track and you're going into the mountains, and you're drawing special cards. And okay, okay, okay. No, okay. no, 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 wait, wait. In the Haversack, we got saltpeter and sulfur, and oh, it's it's all sorts of fun stuff in Feudum. The, okay, so that, I think, characterizes both of our reactions right off the top. There is a lot going on here. I feel bad having to establish our bona fides, but we're, we are neither of us strangers to complicated games. But... There's a lot going on here. My rules explanation for Feudum, without any breaks, going full tilt and with a minimum of interruptions for questions, lasts 30 to 40 minutes of solid rules explanation. That's a lot. I've played 10-hour consims with 50-page rulebooks that have easier rules explanations and with fewer subsystems involved in them. There's a video that I watched, and I really feel as though if someone just getting into board games watched this video would think that this is a joke. Because <laughs> like I said, the terminology of, you know, you take your haversack and, and just the way he talks, it, it sounds like it is, it is, he's trying to put you on that this is an actual game. Well, this is, this is one of the benefits of the game. Everything is 
there's no text on any of the components you need to worry about, so you don't need to be married to the specific terminology. So yeah, you don't have to call the bag of goods the haversack if you don't want to. You seem obsessed with the haversack in particular. Well, just because, like I said, when they said it in the video... And then he, you know, was going on about all the other parts. I just, I just started laughing aloud, and anyway, I thought sure. it was just very funny. Sure. So I agree with you that the primary element of the game, or at least the primary interesting element of the game, I'll say, is the guilds and how they interact. It creates this interesting little economic system because the guilds, some of them trade in some kinds of goods, some of them trade in some in other kinds of of goods. Roughly half of them deal in goods cubes, but not in a only one of them in a straightforward buy sell way. The rest of them deal in other kinds of resources. Influence markers, rosary beads, which we haven't even talked about, royal seals, which we haven't even talked about. And you turn influence markers into royal se- royal seals, and then the royal seals into, into rosaries, and the rosaries go on the chickens. Anyway, so there's a lot of economic levers to push and pull in the game. And to be frank, that is the thing that I find the most interesting. The way in which the different guilds interact with each other, and in turn the way in which the map influence about taking control of various areas and of manipulating your pawns in turn gives you influence in the guilds. Those parts I think are very interesting, but, and it's a big, but I don't think that it pays off very well in a number of ways. One of the ways in which I don't think it pays off very well is, is that the ecosystem in Feudum, while it's complicated, it's not terribly what I would call dynamic. You can end up with lots of log jams. For example, if it's the case that you're invested in, say, the Monk Guild, and it is the case that the Farmer Guild isn't doing things the way you want them to, or even if the Farmer Guild is trying to do things in a way that that would benefit you but they can't, you might be in a position where you can't score points with the Monks anymore, simply because, and again, I'm being literal here, the chickens are full of rosary beads. Setting aside the ludicrousness of that. Now, there are, there are ways around this, of course. There's a way to wipe all the rosary beads off the chickens. You know, there's subsystem upon subsystem. You can go and starve somebody to death with a specific version of the advanced version of the, of the conquest action. And that'll clear the rosary beads, which means you can instead interact. But, but the, the long and the short of it is, in a game with a robust economic system, even if it's a much simpler economy, and let me tell you, most games have a simpler economy than the one going on in Feudum, there's more dynamism involved. There's going to be more of a push and pull. There's going to be a more, more ability to react and capitalize on fluctuations in the market, as opposed to Feudum, where the market is so vast and complicated that things tend to proceed in satisfying ways, but in relatively slowly incremental ways. And you end up with these weird little log jams that are kind of hard to clear. And that, I think, kind of undercut one of the one of the biggest joys of the game. What did you think about the guild system overall? I agree with most of what you said. I like how it worked. But for it to be interesting, I felt all you're really doing is just completing rows and columns. And it really did not seem that interesting. The way it worked was great. But just the fact that, oh, I have two columns, so that means I get six points. Or if I didn't quite get a column. Or like you said, there was nowhere to pull or push. And then you couldn't even do it. And a lot of the time, it just seemed like a no-brainer that you have to that you would take the guild action to score the points, and you have a, a multiplier action card. Let's just go quickly into the card system. Yeah, let's talk about the activation system. Yeah, yeah. You, every turn, you'll have a hand of you know ten to eleven cards. Everyone has the same deck. That's another thing I wanted to bring up that there are no asymmetric sides here. Everyone is exactly the same. So everyone has this large hand of cards. You're going to pick four. And there's another instance where you might be able to pick five. If you pay us all, Peter. If you pay us all, Peter. 
you can have five actions a turn, but normally you're going to have four. One of the, and there are all sorts of things. I'm not going to go into all everyone's, but one of them, like I said, is a multiplier of two. So it almost seems inevitable that you're going to take your guild action card, your times two card, and use them in tandem in order to skill, score the guild twice a turn. Initially, when I played the game, I was very, very disappointed in the action selection system. I thought that it was a little simplistic and... and led to kind of forced plays. Upon reflection, though, and having played more games of Feudum, I don't mind all that much because if the game is going to be incredibly complicated and in some kinds very novel, I don't mind that there's one element that's relatively straightforward and sometimes a bit of a no-brainer. So yes, very mu- uh, very often in the rounds, you will be taking the guild action and then doubling that so you can take two guild actions. I think that's less of a sin of the overall activation system and more a function of how much the guild action is. The guild action is literally, depending on your board position, any one of 6 to 12 different actions. And they're very, very different. Some of them get you money. Some of them cost money but give you goods. Some of them trade in some other thing for some other thing or whatever. And a lot of the crucial resources of the game, the things you need to advance in feudum in order to get board position or in order to feed your people or in order to establish the kind of city you need to establish, you need to do guild actions. And so you end up playing the guild action very, very often just to be able to get these fundamental things in your economy going. So on the one hand, I don't mind that it's so straightforward because, again, the rest of the game is so involved. But I I do wish that some of these guild actions might have been parceled out into other functions, either some other way to manipulate the economy, some kind of end round where you were allowed to buy goods at a default or something like that. I don't know. But something just to make it so that you didn't have so that the one the, the one sort of gatekeeper to practically all the fundamental economic actions of the game was this guild action. Back to the cards, I I felt as though the player count really manipulated what cards were being used. Like if it was just a three, two, three player game, then you're not going to play the defense card very often. Whereas you're going to play the tax card more often because you're going to be in charge of more of the land type that the tax action is going to, uh, you know, interact with. Can you imagine in like a five-player game, you would never play the tax action because you would never have any extra, you know I mean? There'd be such a fight over the territories that you would never play it. There was just so, there was quite a few cards that you just never used out of that deck. And I thought that was an opportunity lost. I agree. That is, that is kind of the corollary of the element of the action selection that I think is, it wasn't stellar. You play the guild action more or less every time and there are a couple of cards that you almost never play and even then it's usually just a a last resort because you have nothing better to do with the card action i agree with you that the player count uh, does influence a lot about how you play the game but for me that's mostly a plus but the game is so long feudum is so very long that i wouldn't want to play it with five there's a six, the sixth player Kickstarter expansion, which we don't have, thankfully, so we weren't even tempted to do that. But the shortest game we ever played of Feudum was with three players who knew the game backwards and forwards already. There were a bare minimum of rules questions, and there was no rules explanation, and it still took us two and a half hours. And that's pretty substantial when you're playing quickly at a lower end of the player count. Now, I will stress, though, something that I, I don't want to bury the lead here. There were practically no, no rules questions. It is a minor miracle, and I couldn't even tell you why it works this way, that even though Feudum is so complicated and has so many subsystems, once you get going and after you've played once, things kind of sort of stick. 
They don't necessarily make sense because, again, let, let me remind you, this is a game where there are rosaries on chickens, but it nonetheless flows in such a way that you're able to go off and do the thing you want to do and, and, and you're, you'll probably be, be able to muddle your way through. Now, the finer details you'll forget. You know, how many cubes do I push from the merchants? Was it four or five? I can't remember. What's the total I need to get to when I am pulling from the nobles? You know, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, when there's a, a game that's this complicated and it's still able to, to function at a relatively smooth cliff, even when it's that long, that at least is, a, is an accomplishment. Yeah, I definitely want to say that the overall feeling I got when the game was over, that it was it was fun. And like we talked about, there was no particular part of the game that you could parse out that was the fun part. But just the overall experience of the game was a very enjoyable experience. The pieces do fit together reasonably well. And as I say, the, the, the bits of feudum that I really like are the way the different guilds interact and the way that the guild presence interacts with board presence. Now, that having been said, despite the fact that it's very smooth, there are some serious usability issues. And I think some of the usability issues have been overblown, but some of them are very, very much apropos. One thing is there's no way to track guild presence included in the game. And what everyone will tell you, and in this case, the popular wisdom of the internet is 100% correct, you need to supply six-sided dice or some tracking method so that everybody can leave a visible reminder next to each guild to track how much presence and influence they have in that guild because otherwise the game i would even go so far as to say borderline unplayable and that is not a term that i throw around very lightly because it is not trivial to glance at the board and see how much influence you have in a guild so it absolutely needs to be tracked even when you have trackers we still sometimes got it wrong and so still sometimes got surprised so in context where it's not being tracked i I can only imagine what a nightmare that would be so there's a huge oversight on the part of, of publishing that could have easily been a, a stretch goal. That having been said, it might have clashed with the very distinctive art style of the game. But that, I think, is the the root cause of many of the usability issues. This is a very pretty game. Feudum is very attractive. It's got this lovely muted color palette and lots of very distinctive but still cartoonish art. Lovely to look at. Sometimes it's not very easy to interact with. So there's that. There's minor things like the fact that the market prices for goods are literally covered up by the cubes themselves. I mean, come on, guys. This is this is a lesson we learned a long time ago with tracks. If there's a track with numbers on it that are covered up by pieces, you need to have the number visible when the piece is there. I mean, come on. That's just a no-brainer. The thing, though, that is really annoying, and I've been looking at BoardGameGeek on this, is the map connections. Because... There are various different connections between different places. Some of them are roads. Some of them are ferry connections. Some of them are submersible connections. Some of them are airship connections, blah, 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 blah. And somebody who didn't care how the game looked, or at least was willing to make concessions, would have made all these color-coded connections, right? Airships are red, and they go along red lines. Simple. Easy. You can figure that out. Instead, you have this sort of cartoony map where rivers go behind mountains and then come up the other side and there are these little cosmetic docks that don't mean anything and don't actually mean you can get there by a ship just because the artist wanted to make it look pretty and you can tell that this is a serious problem because in every game we've played people have looked at two places and asked are these places adjacent that's a fundamental question or, or even moved yeah thinking that they were adjacent and yeah. not till like a later turn just while you were talking i was thinking about easy fixes have a picture in the rule book with all the connections in colors. So it's like, oh, is that connected? You just look at it. Yes, it is. And like you said, there's, like I said, there was airships in it where they, they do the connections with, with flocks of birds, a nice little row of birds to each connection. But then they also put the exact same birds randomly 
all over the map for, you know, aesthetic purposes. And I'm just like, really? There was a thread on board game of people reducing the map to numbered nodes and then listing all the no- the numbered nodes connections, which was which was invaluable. And then experienced players of the game would show up and say, wait, 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 I thought you could sail to that location. Isn't that on the river? And other people saying, no, 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 it's not on the river. And then, then the same other people showing up and saying, I always thought it was on the river. Why can't you sail there? There's a little drawing of a port. And people say, no, 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 it's offset from the river. You can't get there. So that's just an indication of the kind of usability issues that, that are that are involved in this game. I don't want to ha- I don't want to drag on about them too much. No. Because it's a relatively minor thing. Yeah, and I'm sure that, you know, they all came up when he was playtesting it with people because that's, you know, something that would you know, would come up, you know, after one play test with a group. So this actually kind of leads to, I think, a good summary for both of our feelings. This is a game that screamed for a developer, a third-party, semi-professional individual who was willing to sit down with a designer and say, Mr. Swanson, you've got a number of good ideas here, but kill your darlings. You need to pare this down because a lot of this stuff is unnecessary, it all works, but a lot of it is unnecessary. And the good stuff is being buried under a whole bunch of dross. And oh, by the way, the map is pretty, but it needs to be changed. You know, s- s- subtle things like that. And I I gave an example last time when we talked about Feudum for the first time. It's like, you know, there, do there need to be all those ways to score in a game with 120 point scores? Do you need that some cards give you one point? And some people said, oh, well, you know, the scoring is not that complicated. And it's not. I'm not I'm not saying that the scoring itself is complicated. I'm just saying that that's an indication that there's just too many details, details that could and should have been pruned out. And above and beyond the fact that this game needs a developer, after having played this game, do I enjoy myself? Yeah. But do I wish that I'd played other games that are maybe a third the length and definitely a third a third to a fifth the complexity? Absolutely. Like, I don't see any reason personally, and this is going to sound harsh, but it's true. I wouldn't see any reason to play this game over, say, almost any Splatter game. Because Splatter games are in many ways the opposite of Feudum. They are very heavy Euro games with lots of important decisions and lots of intersecting bits and subsystems that interact with each other, but with much lighter rule systems. I can explain a Splatter game in 15 minutes, 10 if I'm really rushing or if I want to if, if give people the big, the big picture view. And we're going to get more player interaction out of most Splatter games. We're going to get a better sense of geography and, uh, you know, just as crunchy and deep an experience with the same quality of decision making. And often the, the, the economy that a splatter game will market, you know, the economy of food chain magnate is a very dynamic, fluid thing that you need to be adaptable to and very, very controlling for. Now, do I, when playing a game like food chain magnate, do I wish instead that there were six guilds that operated in a circle? Not really. So that's clever, but the, the guild system is clever in Feudum, but I don't think it really gets us very far. And in many ways, and this is this is how I'll uh, sum it out, this game actually, Feudum reminds me a great deal of Matt Gertz's Navigador. Navigador is a 75 to 90 minute game with a very dynamic market system where you really have to capitalize on the economy of what other people are doing, very much like the gold system in Feudum, but in a much more dynamic and adaptive way. And it still has elements of board position, of making sure to be able to, to, to travel to the places you want to get to, so to seek out new territories that, that other people are getting at. And it's got a rule set that's probably about, I don't know, one-eighth as complicated. And you're going to get the same, I think, satisfaction out of it. And it's got a more interesting action selection mechanism, which, again, is, is a very personal thing. I like clever action selection mechanisms, and the Rondel is very good. So Feudum has a number of good things in there. 
But man, there are so many things in Feudum that I can't end up at the end of the day recommending it. Yeah, same same for me. Like when you leave a, like a splatter game or a big Euro, you think about different strategies you're going to try next time, different paths you're going to take. That's not to say they're not in Feudum, but they change so rapidly during gameplay. You can't really think, oh, I wish I had done this differently. Or, I think I've done, I wish I had done that differently because I really felt as though you cannot anticipate what the other players are going to do. So you can't really plan ahead. You, you, you just have to take it as it comes type thing. The other point I'm going to make is I can see this working in groups when they first get it. They all read the rules. They play it a bunch of times. They have fun playing it. Then it goes onto the shelf and people forget how to play. And I really don't think people are going to want to reteach it and relearn it instead of just grabbing another game off that shelf. I, I, that's, that, uh, that's my thought. It's a non-trivial barrier. One of the, one of the things that I enjoy playing games to review them very often. I even enjoy sometimes playing games that I know I'm going to give a negative review to. But honestly, the prospect of teaching new players how to play Feudum filled me with something bordering dread. Because it's such a Herculean under- undertaking. I don't mind explaining games. I do it all the damn time. I, you know, and, and, and in my better moments, I think I'm halfway decent at it. But explaining Feudum is such a chore and such a grind. So yes, if you're in a small group and you're always playing with the same people and you want one heavy Euro game, I'd still tell you to go get a Splatter game. Or if you're interested in something lighter, I'd say something like Feast for Odin because it feels more open and and, and more flexible and you get to do different things. It's just when it comes to a game that's going to be longer than two hours, if it's going to be reliably three to four hours, I want it to have something like an arc, like a genuine progression. Like I feel like we've started from nothing and we've worked up to something tremendous. I don't get that from Feudum because you can start out with guild presence, guild control relatively early on and do the guild the guild master action. And often the same guild master action you're going to be doing at the end of the game. For the same amount of points. For the same amount of points. And it's very hard to switch from one guild to another. It's a time-consuming, expensive process. So often you don't end up doing it. So there's a lot of uh, sunk cost fallacy going on. Or... I want the game to be historically evocative. Obviously, Feudum isn't going to do that. Feudum is very lovely, but it's thematically it's a hash. You know, the game tries to explain what's going on in terms of, well, this is a noble that's starving a peasant to death or something, I guess. And once you establish a Feudum, you need to do military service because the king cares. Where's the king? Why does the king want me to go kill the other king's subjects? Okay, yeah, sure, whatever. No, I looked it up today in the rule book. There is same thing. Foreshadowing is four, not four lines, but... Two little small paragraphs. Hey, you've just lost everything and you've been pushed into this new land. Off you go. And that's it. So it doesn't really give you this, you're doing this because, or you're, like you said, building up to something and slowly getting bigger or any purpose to do any of these things. It, it's, yeah, it, and in, that's not there. In shorter, tighter games, I don't demand this. But again, if you're going to demand that I sit down to 120 to 240 minute experience, I need something more than what tighter Euro games are going to give me. And there are tighter Euro games that often give me a better sense of an arc of more dynamism than the three to four hours of Feudum. And again, three to four hours of Feudum, you know, it passes reasonably nicely if you're playing with people you like. I mean, don't play games with people you hate, generally speaking. But I, there's just not enough there for me to recommend it. And so it's all these sharp edges that don't need to be there, the subsystem upon subsystem upon subsystem, all in the service of not a whole heck of a lot. And... I do think with a developer, something interesting might have come out of this because the guild system at its core is pretty decent. 
So this is a, an example of why sometimes self-publishing, I think, is uh, not the way to go. I was about to say, ask you the same thing. Is this a problem of Kickstarter because he got to you know self-publish? And had this gone through a publisher, would they have forced a developer on it and turned into something really good? We will never know. It is very pretty, though. It is. I really like it's Like I said, it's that very toned-down, uh, non-gloss, much like uh, Quartermaster General that I really enjoy. And the, those those painted figures are adorable. Yeah, the little monsters. Yeah, I, even though they were never used in yes. any of the games, just I, having I, them on you know on the side of the table. I hired a behemoth once. Oh, you did. All yes, right. you you weren't you weren't in that game. I regretted it. And I can see in in like like we talked about if you were playing with five players that they might see the light of day more often. So a near miss, an unfortunate near miss, and this isn't the kind of near miss where you might want to pull it down once in a while, because as you say, the barrier is so high. It's just a massive undertaking in the service of not quite enough. Feudum for us, I think, is a solid pass. Now on to the topic of the week, which is knock knock North America, it's Europe, and we've got games for you to play. (laughs) So this is all going to be about what is a Euro game? Why do we still need this definition between Ameritrash and Euros? But suffice to say that the the age-old splits have, to a certain extent, been going away over the past couple of years. And I think this is largely because we're seeing an increased hybridization of Euro and Ameritrash game elements. And there are a couple of different design threads in this vein. And I think we're going to have a slightly different emphasis. To my mind, the the, sort of the pioneers of this way of doing things are uh, a number of French designers. People like Bruno Catala, people like Serge Laget, like Ludovic Maublin or Croc. So these are games like uh, Cyclades or Comet that really tried to redo conflict in a very Euro kind of way. Not the sort of superficial conflict that you might see in a game like Small World, which is it's still very incremental and still very, you know, Euro deterministic kind of maximization engine. But instead, the kind of conflict where it still feels like an old-fashioned Ameritrash bashing people against each other, but still with the kind of design elements that we've come to love in Euro games. No player elimination, fast moving, a sort of way to make sure that everyone is still in the game, uh, even at the end, light rule set, quick play times, things like that. And I think of additionally designs like Claustrophobia by Croc, which is weird because it's kind of like everything coming full circle because Claustrophobia in many ways is sort of a fantasy version of Space Hulk. And Space Hulk is arguably, despite the fact that it's British, one of the, you know, trashy, Ameritrashiest games around, despite its relatively simplified rule set. There are, of course, you know, there are ways to do this badly. And I think, I suspect you're going to disagree with this, but one of the ways to merge the two design schools badly, I think, can be seen in Twilight Imperium, where you have a relatively straightforward Ameritrash, I'm going to throw my hunk of pl- hunks of plastic against your hunks of plastic and toss a bunch of dice, but I'm just going to graft on this Puerto Rico roll selection right on top, uh, because I can't think of any other way to do this. And the political system, you know, we'll just have all this, you know, happening in the background. Right. And sort of just mash them together in a head-on, you know, collision and see what comes out at the end. I agree. I I'm totally agree that that is what is happening in Twilight Imperium. But it just, I, I find it works out and it, I find that it really does give you this, the epic feel at the end of it. Yeah, that is one, that is definitely one of the things when it comes to Euro versus Ameritrash, it's very much, and, and about which hybrids you prefer, it can very be, be very much be about which things you are willing to compromise on and which things you are not willing to compromise on. I, for example, am not willing to compromise on things like 
accessible rule sets whenever possible and quick playing and dynamic and uh, you know no- novel mechanisms and, and, and clever scoring elements and things like that. A lot of other people look at a game like... I'm not a huge fan of Cyclades, but Cyclades does a lot of this this stuff very well. Uh, they look at things like Cyclades or Comet, which I am a huge fan of, and they say, yeah, but you're missing the epic sense of scope. You're missing the sense of vast armies spreading out across a large map and con- and controlling vast swaths of territory. To much where I response is, yeah, that's gone, but that's fine. That caused all kinds of problems. And I think many of the games for which you're enthusiastic, not that you dislike any of those games that, that, that I've talked about, but you still very much want that sense of scope, of scale, of sweep. Well, that's why I feel uh, Scythe does a fantastic job, right? Because you have the the Euro sort of tableau building, you know, moving your, revealing stuff off your map, much like uh, Gaia Project or Terra Mystica, yet you still have, you know, the giant mechs marching across, you know, the, the field, but there are no player elimination. Your troops just magically teleport back to your homeland and off you go again. It's weird because I've never gotten a sense of scope or sweep from Scythe. I like Scythe just fine. I think it's I think it's a very good game. But you're talking about a game where there are very few fights, and it's mostly just about resource manipulation. And that's that's okay. I've got no problem with Euro resource manipulation games, and the visual elements are very, very nice. But I think that it's a mistake to look at those mechs and fall for the kind of very well-spun fiction that they're trying to sell to you. It is, but I'm just saying it when you're sitting there and you see it, even though it's not happening, it, it does give you sort of the feel that these giant mechs are marching across. You know what I mean? Even though it doesn't really pan out that way. I know maybe because ta- I talked about how it was very disappointing in the first few games because like when you see the components and you think there's going to be this epic mech battles that you're disappointed that doesn't happen. But it still, you know, in the end gives you that feel at the end. And again, I think this might be just a function of my bias, my, how I fundamentally self-identify you know, aside from con sims and war games, because I'm still very much a, a, a con sim war gamer and miniatures gamer uh, in, in many ways. But when it comes to Euro versus Ameritrash, I'm, I'm still firmly in the Euro camp. And I think, so, so maybe it's just out of bias that I say things like, it is easier for a Euro game to take on the trappings of an Ameritrash game and be successful than it is for the other way, other way around. It is... Because, precisely because the appeal of a Euro game, the strengths of a Euro game are things are things about mechanical simplicity and about in, integrity of rule systems. And you can't start grafting on rules and still have that sort of accessibility, simplicity, streamlined, streamlined element and integration of rule systems, precisely because you're taking something out of context. Whereas if it's just about window dressing, if it's about narrative, it's about if it's about the graphics to convince you you're doing something that you're not, well, any game can do that. And if you're successful enough at the graphic design and about, about crafting the setting, well, then you can have that experience. Like you said, I really feel as though the Ameritrash games are taking more from the Euro games than the other way around. I really don't feel that there's many Euro games that are adapting Ameritrash fundamentals as there are Ameritrash games incorporating. I'm not sure that is, that, that's true because, again, like the fundamentals of a Euro game are about the mechanics. The fundamentals of an Ameritrash game are often about... Buckets the, of plastic. The theme, the scope, and components. And I, I, I don't mean to diss that. It's just Euro games and Euro game designers, many of whom aren't European anymore, many of whom are, are you know, very firmly in the, the uh, American design school or Americans in point of fact in terms of nationality, have been able to say, well, I can have my Euro game, you know, again, take Scythe, for example. I can make a Euro game where we have these trappings of giant plastic mechs 
and I'm going to have the best of both worlds. And to a certain extent, the market has responded, yes, and that is what people are looking for. I don't think you can do that with an Ameritrash game. You can't design an Ameritrash game that's about buckets of plastic and throwing lots of dice and, and, and sending your, your armies out in the world and say, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to draft on, I'm just going to graft in a, an afterthought auction system. It's like, no, that, that's not going to work. That's not going to get you the benefits that you're looking for. Do you understand where I'm coming from? I do. I think Eric Lang does a very good job as well. He's taken the like the no player elimination with Blood Rage and and Rising Sun, where you know you can use your troops in many different ways, and there's many subsystems and many ways to score. You know the what they say the victory point fruit salad of Euro games, and done a fantastic job incorporating it all with these you know buckets of plastic. I would definitely put Rising Sun squarely in that same category as uh, something like Scythe. Because Rising Sun is all about mechanisms. It's all about finding the right levers to pull. It's about system mastery. It's about, it's not really about tactical maneuvering or, or, or strategic thinking in many ways. It's about coming to grips with the rules system. So it's not Euro in the sense of being simpl- simple and accessible. It's Euro in the sense of you can really see the, greer, the gears of the system grinding and about how it's very much a mathematical incremental enterprise. But it's got all this lovely statuary. And so you're able to tell yourself this story about how it's really this highly thematic game about a, a fantasy Japan, which of course is nonsense. I mean, I've, I, I, again, to talk about Rising Sun, the absurdity of the theme, once you start poking even a little bit, it really starts falling apart. Like when you're the Fox Clan and you have these guys popping out of ambush and they arrive from their ambush to ritually kill themselves and then, with their dying breath, say, oh, by the way, Ronan, go take the province. And then you still win the fight anyway. It's just, thematically, it's, a, it's, it's absurd. It's right in a Monty Python, for yeah. sure. And I do, I do think, again, despite the fact that I don't have a huge amount of enthusiasm for what you would call Ameritrash games, I do wish that there were more games that were genuinely thematically compelling, like your Space Hulk, like your Claustrophobia. We've talked about theme before, and about how compelling theme is, is, is often better done in simple games than it is in very elaborate games. But the, the common, especially in the era of Kickstarter, the common way to do theme is to just have lovely miniatures, lovely components, deluxify it, TM, or lovely card art. But that doesn't really get you to theme, that just gets you to pretty things to look at, which I don't object to. But I often feel that, you know, the modern design sensibilities of trying to uh, of involve the element, the, you know, the virtues of Ameritrash have forgotten the virtues of theme and have just internalized the virtues of plastic. But that's, again, that's, that's, that's a topic of a thematic integration. And I don't think that a lot of Ameritrash games were very thematic to begin with. Most of Fantasy Flight's in-house stuff, especially the Arkham Horror stuff and the Eldritch Horror and all that other other stuff, I find much less thematic than a lot of Eurogame spreadsheet games. So I want to readdress the, the Ameritrash taking Euro stuff and making it and more than the other way around. And it's all these risk games that have come out. And I really think they've done that well, right? Where they've taken just standard Ameritrash risk and adapted these new mechanisms and just sort of pasted them on top. But it really works. Like Risk 2110... Uh, the Full Metal Gear one, the Godstorm. Metal Gear Solid? Metal Gear Solid. I think all of these new Risk games, I think they work very well. Full Metal Gear Panic Alchemist? Panic Alchemist, yes, yeah, okay, that's yeah, the yeah, one. That was, uh, that, was, that was an impressive crossover. It uh, didn't make a whole lot of sense, but... It was. It came out right after the Doctor Who zombie Walking Dead one. Oh, right, and um, then they released the, uh, the, the Swimsuit Episode expansion. That's right. Yeah, okay. Exactly. That all makes sense. 
I remember five or more years ago when people had these obnoxious sort of self-identification battles. It's like, oh, I'm an Ameritrasher, your games are terrible, and, and you're, you're, you're a wimpy snob. And then the wimpy snobs would say, yeah, we are snobs because we have good taste and you would know a good blah, 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 blah. It was, it was tiresome and silly. And it really is the case that, that, especially in the past five years, there isn't this clean distinction anymore between Euro games and Ameritrash games. And you see the more thematic game designers really trying to involve tight, well-done mechanisms. And a lot of the European designers try to make sure that the themes are compelling and well-integrated. Now, sometimes, as I say, it's largely deceptive and largely premised on plastic, but the effort is at least there. And that's one of the benefits of game design being an iterative process. You know, we all build upon the successes of our of our forebears in game design in a way that's much more transparent than in other media, say, like, you know, novels and music. You know, nobody can say, well, now that we have Moby Dick, your next novel about whales is going to be all the better. But if someone finds a way to do auctions well, well, and it definitely has an influence on subsequent designs. I think uh, that's why I want to talk about the when first introduction, right, was I think it was something to talk about was because it's accessibility and globalization, right? It's because before we couldn't even get these Euro games that we had to, we had to you know, mail them in and, you know, download or find someone that spoke German and, and you know, got have it translated and you were like the, you know, the one person, the one person that had this game because, you know, it didn't happen, right? And I thought, I think that maybe that, I was wondering if that led to why there was such a, you know, distinction between the two houses. People just keep upping their game. I really do think that now, you know, we talk about the cult of the new versus the old and so forth. And, and, you know, many of my favorite games are still 20 years old. But when it comes to things like refining combat systems, when it comes to things like refining ways to deal with all the kinds of problems we talked about, like multiplayer, the, the problems inherent in multiplayer conflict games, or new and novel ways to make sure that games involve genuine trading and negotiation, like some of the innovations of John Company or Sidero Confluence, stuff like that. It really does give you hope for progress in the hobby. Now, these are games are still works of art, so you have these epic-making designs of 20 years ago. But you're right. There are these design threads that are the products of increasing market diversification and of increasing globalizations, globalization that have given us designs like Kemet, where you look at it and say, this is not the kind of Euro game that would have been possible 10 years before its publication. It would have been borderline unthinkable or impossible to characterize, or it's the same kind of design thread that led people designing a game like Twilight Imperium 3, regardless of how successful you think the results are, and obviously I don't think they were very successful. But the mere fact that, that, that the people who make Twilight Imperium play Puerto Rico and say, this is a cool way to distribute roles, let me put this on my Spaceship Pew Pew game, these are interesting developments. And I think there's a lot more collaboration going on now that we just don't know about, right? That wasn't possible before like these designers are all now talking to each other that just didn't happen before i don't know about whether it's direct one-on-one communication but it's certainly the case that a game designer can be expected to be exposed to a lot more different kinds of games and that that that's a dialogue in and of itself it's nice to be able to end a topic on a on a thread of optimism that's right (laughs) well how many games come out every year and and they are just upping their game every time we're almost not i shouldn't say blown away but I'm impressed on a monthly basis with some of these games that are coming out and how they find new mechanisms, a new way to integrate two mechanisms together, and I'm just looking forward to more stuff. Toot toot, the hype train has left the station.
Well, that's going to close us out for this episode. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at All the Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care. See you next week. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.